When the weather outside is frightful, the Hyundai Santa Fe is, hmm, what's the word? Delightful. Because it's got available H-Track all-wheel drive to make being out together better. Enter for your chance to win the newly redesigned Santa Fe, packed with all the jingle bells and whistles you need to go dashing through the snow together. To enter, visit Amazon.com slash Hyundai or scan the QR code on specially marked red and green Amazon boxes. No purchase necessary. Call 562-314-4603 for complete details. Gentlemen, Chris Cook alongside me, Alan Buck. It is Game Day IQ at thegruelingtruth.com. Alan Buck, say hello to everybody this Thursday evening. Good evening, everybody. It is fun to be here. I'm looking forward to it. We're going to have a fun show. Uh, Chris, my Game Day IQ went up, and I'm, I know yours will too, and I hope people out there, you're going to hear, you're going to hear I, it, you have no idea who the first woman to win uh, first American woman to win a gold medal is, do you? You'll no, find out I do tonight. not. I, I You'll can't find out. I do. Yeah, uh, but you know what? First, uh, and and we'll we'll consider her one of those women who came before. You know, we've we've been doing that kind of a thing. Without her, you know, the the trails she blazed for others to follow is pretty terrific. Uh, one thing I want to get back to a couple weeks ago, I said that the leading scorer in international soccer is an American named Abby Wambach. She doesn't pronounce her name that way, so I apologize. It's pronounced Wambaugh. We uh, hear where we're from in southern Indiana. That name is not, not, not uncommon. Um, a Harrison grad, very illustrious in the athletic world. Uh, Harrison High School is where my partner here, Mr. Cook, went. Uh, his name was Rick mm-hmm. Wambach. And he was an excellent football player, basketball player, track star. His son, Scott, went to school with my older son, Jarrett. And uh, Jarrett also played football with an older brother. So, And it's always been Wambach. So I pronounced it that way on the air and then uh, ran across. I heard her name mentioned um, on TV, and it was pronounced the other way. So I apologize. Hate hate doing that. And uh, I know when I'm listening <laughs> – and some clown messes up a name that's very common. I think you know. There you go. There you go. I deserve it. And I, but I, I brought it up. You didn't even know I mispronounced it, did you? No. I mean, I used my southwestern Indiana dialect all the time, and uh, there you go. That's the way and, I've always pronounced it. <laughs> well, yeah. And like I said, the alum from your school. His name was pronounced that way, and I'm sure, you know, in the, in the annals of football at Harrison High School, you uh, have heard about Rick Wambach. And uh, so, anyway, my apologies, but I did want to get that out of the way. And something else I ran across, we don't, I have, I've been reticent in bringing up, uh, or excuse me, neglectful in bringing up quotes lately. And I ran across a gentleman this week um, that Chris knows. He was a very, very smart football mind from the defensive side of things over the last 30-odd years. Uh, he's, he's 
basically retired, not going to move forward this coming fall. And I happened to run into him and struck up a conversation. We were talking, uh, talk, just talking football. You mentioned the F word around me, football, that is, and, and conversation <laughs> flows. And he said something regarding defense. It was very succinct. And I looked at him and I said, hey, can I quote you on that? And it's, it's so simple, yet, it, and it's so meaningful, yet so many kids and coaches don't do it. And here's what he said. He said, don't get beat before the snap of the ball. Now, it, it, basically what it means is don't, you know, you don't put yourself in the wrong position. Don't have the wrong players in the wrong position because you know, you're on defense, which is it's kind of guesswork, but you know, don't get yourself out of position. And you're, when you're we're dealing with high school football, you're, you're dealing with adolescent boys, and they, of course, know more than any coach that's ever coached the game, right? So, but so so that's but that think about that, Chris. Don't get beat before the snap of the ball. Isn't that pretty good? Yeah, that's pretty good. I mean, basically, put yourself in the position before the snap, and mm-hmm. your odds are going to improve greatly. Yeah, you'll have uh, – it affects your um, – maybe your angles of pursuit, um, obviously your cover uh, positions, things like that. But anyway, I, I just thought that was pretty cool, and it came from Mr. Tolly McClatchy. Hmm. Uh, he's, he's, people in this area know that name. I mean, he's, he's, he's a defensive guru, basically. Uh, and he'd been down at Mount Vernon the last couple of years. Uh, where we have been broadcasting, actually. and um, But anyway, that's why I wanted to share that. And, uh, you know, it could have been it could have been said by, you know, Vince Lombardi or, 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 you know, Bill Parcells or any of them because as succinct and pithy as that is. So anyway, that's the way we let off the show. But uh, let's, let's talk about this month in history, and there is some good, good stuff. Um, what do we got? It, well, the first one, uh, I know you're a big fan of his. We're going to we're talking we're, and we're doing two weeks at a time here folks because we we kind of we're a little lean on material, so uh, rather than to, you know, try to put up some fluff every week, we'll just take our time and and maybe go every other week until we, you know. But anyway, argue, June argue 5th, you like a bunch of hypothetical mythical this and that. Oh heavens, we're not doing that. We're well, you, you good point, Chris. Thank you for bringing that up. <laughs> no, I mean some of these guys, I mean, people, I mean, they. I like to think they like to think of our opinion as really high, but, you know, some of these broadcasters out there, I don't give a damn what they think. You know, they're not scientists. They don't know, mm-hmm. you know, what's going to happen. It's just their gut instinct, and you can only hear so much of that before it gets old. Sure, sure. Well, I, I tell you, you know, I've, I've, I think I've mentioned this to you before, but one, I, I learned something about broadcasting. This was a few years ago. I was watching women's golf. The, the gal was, had, was in a fairway bunker, and she was, oh, let's, let's say 150 yards from the pin. So, and she was at the front of the bunker. So the, the, the announcer analyzes this all, that if she used a certain club that gave her the loft to get over the lip, she was going to be way short of the green. If she used the right club for the distance, she wouldn't be able to clear the front lip of that sand of that sand trap. And just as he's finishing all this very intelligent announce, uh, you know, anal- analysis, and it sounded very good, the gal hits a shot and put it to three feet. 
And he just paused and he said, well, that shows you what I know about golf. So that guy, and I, I wish I knew his name right now, I could tell you, but it showed he was humble. He basically acknowledged, you know, all the analysis that you can give. It's just your, your opinion, and it might be right. You know, there's, there are times Chris has asked me, hey, call, what's this next play going to be? And I've called, and I've been spot on, and I look like a genius. There have been other times, you know, I've called a, short slant or something like this and they they run a sweep and i look like an idiot so uh, it's you know don't get too impressed with your own opinion i guess i'm never never wrong so i'm always right so i mean (laughs) in the chris lives in a house of mirrors folks so whenever he looks in a mirror he's always right (laughs) right. now hey well, well let's let's go on here june 5th 1941 brought the birth of Robert Kraft, owner of the New England Patriots. I figured we'd start off with somebody that Chris looks up to. Um, now, if, if I asked 9 out of 10 people, maybe not 9 out of 10, 8 out of 10 people on the street, where did Robert Kraft get his million, millions and billions of, money, of dollars? And they would say he's a member of the Kraft Cheese family because it's up there in that neck of the woods, but he's not. He made his fortune in paper manufacturing as the owner of the paper companies Rand Whitney and International Forest Products. Did you know that? No, I did not. Yeah, I, I did not either. Um, but uh, I knew he, I, I knew it wasn't craft cheese, but I thought it was real estate. But anyway, there you go. He owned a fleet of massage parlors from coast to coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's where he's just spending it. That's not where he earned it. That's where he's spending it. Wow. Um, Here's let's let's go to the June sixth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, hey, you're awfully light, by the way, tonight. Okay. I'll Sorry for that aside it. comment, folks, but we'd rather do it now than let it go. Um, He's an angel June, investor. There you go. There you go, Hoss. You're right <laughs> on it now. Um, hey, June the sixth. If I asked Chris, if I asked you who has won the Boston Marathon the most times, you'd have no idea. If I asked you how many races, well, yeah. If I asked you how many races is that, what would you say? I'm talking about the men's open division here. How many? What? Who has won it? Not who, but how many times has the winner of you know the most? Like like I don't know, you know, like two or twenty or a hundred. You know, how many times has the person won it? Who has won it the most? And I'm talking men. We're talking north of five. North of five. God bless. Now, that's a very obscure, peculiar question, and Chris and I are not marathon runners, and he's, darn, he's, he's on it. He's right on it, and I'll, I'll get to his say. For the record, the women's most often winner is Catherine Ndereba from Kenya, N-D-E-R-E-B-A, and she has four victories. The men, and I said June 6th, he was born in 1888 on June the 6th. Clarence DeMar, he won it seven times. He first won it in 2011 at age 22. He then won three straight years, 22, 23, and 24. He added victories in 1927 and 28 and won his final Boston Marathon in 1928 at age 39. Wow. So that's pretty impressive. Uh, not the winning at seven times. Do you times, think they ran barefoot back then? or did? I mean, what, what was the shoe technology like in the 1920s? Well, they probably started with shoes. By the time they were done, the shoes probably were worn out and falling off their feet. But uh, actually, Kip, Kip Kino is the only one that I knew of that ran barefooted 
often, uh, well, then Zola Budd uh, did. She's from South Africa. Kip Kino is from Kenya. Um, I'm not sure if they made them wear shoes in in the running of the Boston Marathon, but but training-wise in the mountains and everything, Kino was famous for running barefoot. Um, here's another fan of uh, another one of your of your big idols, Chris. June 9th, 1940, is the birth date of Dick Vital. Oh wow! Great, great, great broadcaster. Hey, <laughs> he he's just. He's fun to read. I almost he, he's almost a caricature of himself, and I wonder if maybe he does that, and maybe he's playing a role the whole time. Because I have seen him other times when he's reasonably subdued, and uh, and he can give you good information. Um, but you know, he was the guy that I told you. I think I told you before when uh, uh, Kelvin Sampson had the IU coaching job back. When, you know, this is when the beginning of the decline of the IU program. He was. It was still, you know, very, very strong. And Kelvin Sampson cheated. And Dick Vitale on a game like a, the day later or two days later, it was a Saturday, we had a Saturday evening game, and he was very serious, and he said, how can you blow that job? And I thought, you know, how succinct and how on point is that? Because it, it, it was one of the prestigious jobs in the country, most prestigious jobs, pardon me, I misspoke, and he he blew it. He had he had everything in his favor. He cheated and he blew it. And I, think I, and I thought, still you know, a little bit of shine on. That. I mean, but I I mean, I still yes. think there's a little gravitas with uh, with IU basketball to where it's it's a sought after position to be the head coach. But I don't think it is what it was, uh, you know, twenty years ago. Right when when we we expected to win the Big Ten title at least every other year, and about every five years we contended very strongly for a national title, and that was in the Bobby Knight era. And you're right, it is, there is some good luster on the job still, but I, don't, I try to understate it because being an alum and a, and a fan, I don't want to overstate it and so on anyway. But, uh, hey, let's look at uh, June the 10th. Listen to this. This is very – Dan Fouts, born 1951, June 10th. He was an NFL Hall of Famer in 1993. Listen to this. When he accepted a scholarship to play college football for the Oregon Ducks, he was relatively unknown. By the time his college career was over, he had set 19 school records. He wow. led the – this is – this, it was fascinating. It's just fun reading about him. He led the NFL in passing four straight years from 1979 through 1982, and he was the first NFL quarterback to pass for over 4,000 yards in three consecutive seasons. Each season set a new record as he threw for uh, 4,082 in 1979, breaking Joe Namath's record of 4,007. Then he went on to 4,715 and 4,802 the next two seasons. Well, now, listen to this, folks. This will, this will teach many of the younger, and I've even brought it up and mentioned it to you, and, and it kind of opened your eyes a little bit at the time, too, but being a student of the history of the game, you're, you're right on board. But the passing explosion coincided with the arrival of Coach Don Coriel in 1978. Actually, the beginning of those unheard-of passing numbers came with Bill Walsh serving as the offensive coordinator of the Chargers beginning in 1976. Fouts was not a very mobile quarterback, but he was extremely tough 
And with a downfield passing approach, he stood in the pocket and took a lot of hits. So Bill Walsh recognized this, even commenting that Fouts, and here's a quote, played more physical football than anybody on his team, including the linebackers. Um, as a matter of fact, Fouts is the first one that I remember wearing a flak jacket. And uh, he, he stood wow. in the pocket even without one. But, didn't they? but anyway, in those days, the Chargers rarely used the shotgun snap, so Fouts had to fade back to pass each time. Now, Don Coriel brought with him a short passing game, ideally suited to a smart quarterback with a strong, accurate arm and a bevy of top-notch receivers. Charlie Joyner and tight end Kellen Winslow. Okay, folks, think one generation older than the Kellen Winslow that you're thinking about, okay? It was Kellen Winslow's dad. So we've already had, we already had two Kellen Winslows retire from the foot game of football. So the older one... <laughs> They're both in the Hall of Fame, Charlie Joyner and the old one. Uh, Fouts also had John Jefferson and Wes Chandler and running back Lionel James, who set an NFL record in 1985 for receiving yards by a back with 1,027. In 1980, Winslow, Jefferson, and Joyner became the first trio of receivers on the, first team, on the, excuse me, on the same team with 1,000 yards receiving in the same season. Uh, Chandler averaged, listen to this, West Chandler averaged 129 yards per game receiving in 1982, which is still wow. a league record. When Charlie Joyner retired, he was the NFL reception leader, which is why I got his autograph at a sporting goods convention when I was with Escalade Sports. <laughs> I'm not a big autograph hound, but uh, the leading receiver in the history of the NFL, yeah, I'm going to ask him. Uh, Muhammad Ali, yeah, I shook his hand and I asked him, um, <clears throat> you know, but but I don't I don't have uh, but a handful of art. But anyway, I could go on about the accomplishments of those receivers and Dan Fouts and the Chargers passing game during the Fouts era. But let's skip to the logical conclusion. This was the perfect storm of the right players to perfect the Air Coriel offense. And like I said, Chris has heard me refer to it many times over the years. Younger people enjoy watching high-powered passing offenses but they all got their roots from Don Coriel with Bill Walsh as his offensive coordinator in the late 70s and 80s. Now, some of you are old enough to remember the Bill Walsh and then George Seifert coached San Francisco 49ers that boasted of the West Coast offense and four Super Bowls. Still, that was a refinement of Air Coriel. Um, Peyton Manning and the Indianapolis Colts won a lot of games with the short-passing ball-control offense. So if you really want to learn about where the game is now, you need to look at how we got here. Long live Eric Coriel. That's that I I just I just love see it reading about that because that's how we got to where we are today, and it all started back then. What'd you think of that, Hoss? Well, I tell you, you know, I remember Dan Faust was like Dan Marino before Dan Marino. Um, mm-hmm. Most of the records that Marino broke. Um, on his way to, you know, setting those records, he had to break Dan Faust's records. And it, one of the things he shares, you know, is Dan Faust never won a Super Bowl. And that's one of right. the things, if you look at the, the two greatest quarterbacks to probably never win a Super Bowl, just looking at the stats, you're talking Dan Faust, you're talking Dan Marino. Um, you're right. I agree with you. And, 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 you know, when you talk about Marino, too, you had uh, you had the um, – the, the the marks the twin marks Clayton and Duper and you had Paul Warfield 
Um, Clayton and Duper were both very, very small, and Warfield wasn't that huge, but he looked Warfield tall. Warfield was next in the 70s. Uh, yeah, Warfield that's right. I'm, I'm, perfect team. You're thinking Nat sorry, Moore. Nat um, Moore, thank you. I, I pictured him. He wore 88, and I pictured him, and I said the Duper and Clayton's, but I'm, my mistake. Um, but, but yeah, he had – the main, what I was getting at is Marino had great receivers around him, and uh, uh, with Mercury Morris in the backfield at, well – Morris Kick and Zonka, uh, there were other options. So that's what also helped Marino. But it was the, it was the short pass. Again, and Marino, those guys were on the 70s Dolphins. Marino only played with 1,000-yard rusher his entire career. There was only one season right? where Miami had a – yeah. And that's a little oh, that's known right, fact. That's is right. A lot of people don't realize that, that Miami only, only had one running back go over 1,000 yards the entire time Dan Marino was there. That's right. I'm and sorry. I, I keep mixing my teams. Uh, if you, if you know the obviously you you talk about a Don Shula who takes the triple headed monster of Kick Morris and uh, Zonka, you know each pulling down about a thousand on the ground. And then you have Greasy with Warfield. Um, you know they were a run heavy team, and he goes to three Super Bowls. Then he goes to two uh, in the '80s with a passing attack. Um, that was more pass first in the strike shortened season of 1982, where they had David Woodley as a quarterback. Uh, Marino was a rookie in 83. People don't remember that. Um, but that 84 season was the first year where Marino started the entire season and basically rewrote the NFL passing record book <clears throat> and then went on to lose, you know, Super Bowl 19 uh, mm-hmm. to the San Francisco 49ers. Mm hmm. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. Well, I appreciate you correcting me. I was sick for a week after that. I was sick for a week after that. uh, (laughs) You know, when you're a kid and you see your team in the playoffs every year, you're like, man, it's going to be great. This is the way it is. You know, and then you go into a drought period later in life. It's like, damn, now I know what those Cub fans felt like for for a hundred years. A hundred years, yeah. Yeah. Hey, you know what else happened on, uh, on June the 10th? This was in... 1752, June the 10th, Benjamin Franklin flew the kite with the key attached during a thunderstorm to collect ambient electrical charge in a Leyden jar, enabling to, to, dis- to demonstrate the connection between lightning and electricity. Ran across that, didn't want to leave it out, folks. Okay, it's not technically sports, but my God, that's, that's you know, we all depend on electricity, and uh, uh, that was June 10th, 1752. All right, in, on uh, June the 11th, 1913, Vincent Thomas Lombardi was born. Passed away in 1970. During the 1960s, he coached Green Bay Packers to five NFL championships in seven years, including the first two Super Bowls. He never had a losing season as an NFL coach, his record was 105 and 35 and 6, including, here's his playoff record, 9 and 1. 9 and 1 in the playoffs. Can you imagine? Uh, here's something that many of you do not know. Although Lombardi was noted for his gruff demeanor and iron discipline, he was far ahead of his time in creating a supportive environment for gay players, and he emphatically challenged existing Jim Crow laws. Those were racial segregation laws. 
and he provided leadership to break the color barrier in football. He once said that he, quote, viewed his players as neither black nor white, but Packer green. That's end quote. I did not know that about him. Did you? No, I did not. I think that's, he, that's uh, pretty, pretty impressive. You know, in his honor, the NFL named the Super Bowl trophy to the Vince Lombardi, renamed the Super Bowl trophy to the Vince Lombardi Super Bowl trophy in 1971. And that was... Thank you. That's the, he, he died suddenly from cancer in 1970, and the next year he was inducted posthumously into the NFL Hall of Fame, and as Chris just said, they named the Super Bowl trophy after him that next year. He was so also a member of the famed Seven Blocks of Granite, a nickname given to Fordham University's famous offensive line. Yep. Now, yep. how would you like to be an offensive line known as the Seven Blocks of Granite? <laughs> that That is a great, great nickname. And until you just mentioned, I had forgotten that, but I'm glad you brought that up. Hey, here's a, another birthday on, on that date, 1939, John Young Stewart. You know him better as Jackie. Now, Sir Jackie Stewart, Scottish auto racer and broadcasting analyst, during his career, he had 27 Grand Prix wins, and he won the World Formula One Championship in 1969, 71, and 73. That's a pretty impressive string. In his first Indianapolis 500 in 1966, he was leading by over a lap with eight to go when a pump went out, causing him to lose. And still, he won Rookie of the Year, despite the race being won by another rookie, Graham Hill. That was, I found that fascinating. You win the Rookie of the Year, despite not winning the race, the Indy 500, and another rookie did win it, and he didn't get the Rookie of the Year award. Uh, here's another birthday on that date, June the, uh, what are we on, the 11th? Um, from 1956, we've already mentioned his name, Joe Montana. Went into the NFL Hall of Fame in 2000. He hit the national stage while playing college football at Notre Dame winning a national championship in 1977 before going on to the San Francisco 49ers and winning four Super Bowls, being named MVP three times. He had the highest passer rating in the NFC five times and led the NFL in 1987 and 1999. Here's another person whose career accomplishments could fill our show. So we're, we're going to leave it at that. But... Uh, you know, he he they they called it the West Coast offense, but uh, was actually, um, you know, came from from Eric Coriel and but uh, Bill Walsh, and then George Seifert uh, made made all those numbers possible. But uh, let's see, we've got oh here's one. This is this is very very interesting. Born on June 13th in 1897, Pavel Johannes Nurmi. He died in 1973. He was, Pavel Nurmi is famous. I mean, he, you know, he, he's a Finnish middle and long distance runner, nicknamed the Flying Finn or the Phantom Finn. He dominated this. Everybody, if you're driving in your car and you're trying to write all this down, pull over because you're going to want to write all this down. <laughs> the, the nicknamed. The Phantom Finn, he dominated distance running in the early 20th century. He set 22 
22 world records in races ranging from 1,500 meters to 20 kilometers. He competed in 12 events in the, in the Olympics in 1920, 24, and 28, earning nine, okay, of 12 events in those three Olympics, he earned nine golds and three silvers. The gold medals were in individual cross-country, team cross-country, 10,000 meters, 5,000 meters, 3,000-meter team, and the 1,500. The silver medals were in the 5,000-meter and the 3,000-meter steeplechase. Now, this is how dominant Pavel Nurmi was. In 1923, he became the first runner to hold simultaneous world records in the mile, the 5,000 meters, and the 10,000-meter races, a feat which has never since been repeated. He set new world records for the 1,500-meter and the 5,000-meter with just an hour between the races and took gold medals in both distances in less than two hours at the 1924 Olympics. Seemingly wow. unaffected by the Paris heat wave, Nermi won all of his races and returned home with five gold medals, although he was frustrated that Finnish officials had refused to enter him for the 10,000 meters. At his peak, Nermi was undefeated for 120 races at distances from 800 meters upwards. Throughout his 14-year career, he remained unbeaten in cross-country events and the 10,000 meters. That, I, you know, that guy, just amazing that he, that he did all that. So, uh, folks, you can if you you can you can look this up on the. Uh, World Wide Web and hit the rewind button and, and listen to all that again. That's that's a lot to swallow, but uh, we got yeah. a lot to cover in this short hour, and we got some some uh, pretty good uh, pretty good birthdays. But Kate, I know you're not a distance runner or anything, but can no. you imagine running um, 1500 meters, which is basically a mile and it's a sprint, and then rest for an hour and then go out and 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 run. Uh, three times that far, and and win that, and and it was in 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 the summer heat in Paris. So, anyway, uh, also on the thirteenth of June in nineteen o three, there was a gentleman named Harold Grange. Sported a nice head of red hair, so Harold Red Grange. He was the Galloping Ghost. He passed away in 1991. The Galloping Ghost was a three-time All-American running back from the University of Illinois. He played his professional football for the Chicago Bears. This is how good he was. He was drafted. He played for the Bears. I think, I think it was his second year uh, or, or third year. He got out of his contract with the Bears um, somebody picked up his option they wanted to start another league and he was going to be the backbone of that league and he played a year for the uh, I believe it was New York wasn't the Titans yet but a, a New York football team and then uh, the league didn't make it uh, but they it was going to be you know he was it was it was all firmly on his shoulders it's kind of like kind of like when the uh, XFL uh, came out with, yeah. uh, and the with Herschel Walker and Steve Young and there was a third one that that they hung their hats on getting these three big superstars. Uh, the USFL. That's what Red, USFL. Pardon me. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm misspeaking a lot tonight. Um, <laughs> I, I I may have to 
it's I'm this ice water I'm drinking is not doing it. I may have to get a beer after the show. Uh, but but, uh, but uh, yeah, it was USFL. That ice water like ain't hitting it. You need to hit the strong yeah. stuff to get your uh, mind right for the game day IQ. Yeah, but uh, the uh, you know that's one thing I've never ever done is before the show or during the show even. But anyway, um, let's see. It was it was Herschel Walker, Steve Young, that'd be and a, somebody. Wouldn't that be yeah? Be that'd a special be a episode. Yeah, yeah, you can get thirsty during the show and just see what happens. Uh huh. Uh huh. Mm. You know well, the thing about the the red go the galloping ghost Red Grange. Uh-huh. You know, these barnstorming tours that they had back then. Oh, yeah. You know, that sounds, I mean, that sounds amazing. Think about barnstorming and playing professional football in the 20s, what that was like, and how many stories you could tell. Well, you know, when when we talk about baseball doing it, to me it's pretty amazing that they played a game and then rode a train and played another game the next day or or whatever. You know, I mean, that's pretty amazing. But when you do it in football, my God, the punishment your body takes. And they didn't have the uh, space-age uh, padding and all that we have these days. So, uh, but, yeah, and you know how good he was. Leather. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was so good that, listen to this, folks. For those that are out there saying, oh, they're talking about someone who was born in 1903, here's a reason. In 2008, he was named the best college football player of all time by ESPN. Wow! Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <clears throat> That's uh, uh, and that. When I read that, I thought, well, even though it's just ESPN, still got to include that. That's pretty impressive. Um, I mean, he was so one. popular by the time he left college that they were talking about running for Congress at age of twenty-two. Yeah, on the Republican yeah, he, ticket. He, yeah, the University of Illinois, and he was um, wasn't he. He was the only running back, only All-American running back that was not a member of the Four Horsemen of Notre Dame. I believe that's correct. And that, that was, his, I guess, his senior year. But that's how he was that good. And uh, uh, so, you know, anyway, if, if you ever have a chance, folks, if you want to look, uh, look him up, Harold Red Grange, he is worth the price of admission. Uh, read all about him. And, uh, you know, when we talk about People who have uh, uh, the ones who gone before. Here's one. June 14th, 1952. This young lady passed away in 2016. Her name is Pat Summit. Basically, folks, she put women's college basketball on the competitive map. Her teams were consistently great, not just good, great. She demanded it. She finished her career, and I'm, I don't think I'm overstating. I'm not being hyperbolic with her. She was just absolutely phenomenal. She coached at University of Tennessee. I guess I probably should even mention that. I, I, I kind of forget that, you know, there is a younger generation out there that may not realize. I mean, for them, it's Connecticut basketball and Gino Ariema. But, no, Pat Summit was the deal. She's Without her, women's college basketball may not be – you know where it was even in her early years. I mean, because she once she elevated it, it continued to snowball. She finished her career with a thousand ninety-eight and two hundred eight record. That was her record. Can you imagine? 
1,098 wow. to 208. Um, she, that would, that, you know, that's, that would break down, let's see, let's divide that by 50. That would break down into 24 and 4. That's what that basically averages out to. I, I did it in quick math, so 24 and 4. I know we play more, sometimes make play more games than that nowadays, but that is extremely, that's average, folks. That's average. Uh, the most wins, that was the most wins in college basketball history at that time. She won eight NCAA titles from 2000, excuse me, from 1987 through 2008. That's eight out of 22 seasons. She was an Olympic gold medal winner in uh, 1984. She was named the Naismith Basketball Coach of the Century in 2000. And listen to this, folks. In, in 2009, the Sporting News placed her at number 11 on its list of the 50 greatest coaches of all time in all sports. She was the only woman on the list. Wow. What do you think of that? In 38 years as a coach, she never had a losing season. So, <laughs> but here's, a, again, to, I mean, it, it, are, are you old enough to wa- have watched her teams when they were? Yes. Yeah, you're old enough. You have seen, and yeah, it was you know without her to get college, the women's college basketball, and and when when uh, Bruce Pearl went down to Tennessee, he went in there and he acknowledged that uh, you know people came, they filled the stands for Tennessee football, and they filled the stands for Tennessee women's basketball, Tennessee men's basketball. Uh, you could have. I mean, other teams would have had more players and or more fans at their own practices than Tennessee basketball. But with his, he supported her team and she supported his. And in just a few years, they got Tennessee basketball up to, uh, you know, the men's basketball up to full stadiums. And uh, and then Bruce messed up there. But uh, anyway, <laughs> uh, Pat Summit, if you to to know just how dominant she was during her career. Googler, uh, we could have again another one that we could have an entire show dedicated to her achievements and what she did for women's sports. So we're just going to pay tribute to her with a happy birthday from June fourteenth, nineteen fifty-two, to Pat Summit. And uh, uh, you know, enough said. I mean, uh, well, you can't. No, I said that backwards. You can't say enough. That's what I should have said. Um, what else you got? To, that stack over. We're, hey, we we haven't we haven't covered all the sports yet, have we? 1958. No. Eric Hyden was born on June the 14th, Ooh, 1958. Eric Hyden, American speed skater. He won. The reason I, I kept he won five gold medals in the 1980 Olympics. Can you imagine? Speed skating, folks, is not that's kind of that kind of rivals Pavel Nurmi. I mean, speed skating. It's it's a whole different musculature and a whole different endurance uh, that you know. But his gold medals uh, were the men's in in 1980. The men's 5,000. Um, let's see, where is it? I just lost it. Darn it! Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> You might be able to find it quicker than I can. You, you want to know his medals? 
Yeah, his gold medals, what events? They were in 5,000 meters and, and probably, well, he probably took all the sprints all the way up to the distances. Uh, oh, here it is. 500 meters, 1,000 meters, 1,500 meters, 5,000 meters, and 10,000 meters. So that's, my God. You know, that's, you know, 5,000 meters, it's, Roughly, it's a little longer than five, or excuse me, 500 meters, a little longer than 500 yards. 1,000 meters, a little longer than, you know, 1,000 yards. Then you get to 1,500 meters. That approximates a mile. 5,000 meters is three miles. 10,000 meters would be over six. Those are ice skating, folks, not running, ice skating. And I would think, I'm thinking ice skating is going to be a little bit tougher than running but he he won all five of those at the and i but i don't know what days how many days apart they were or anything like that i didn't look up the schedule but uh those sprints uh, though when they do those those 500 meter sprints but the, when they do like the shorter versions of those sprints those things are like short track nascar races mm-hmm, where you see the mm-hmm. you see the racers kind of get very close to each other and you know having those blades on your feet i can only imagine you know, the amount of nicks and cuts that you could potentially get in a speed mm-hmm. skating uh, speed match like that. But, you know, it's yeah. always an event. When I when the when the Winter Olympics come on at the cook home, you know, I'll watch the speed skating because I'm always impressed with those athletes. Absolutely. Bonnie Blair was another great Olympic uh, speed skater, and I think she's the most decorated Winter Olympics, American Winter Olympic lady, uh, female, I think. That's off the top of my head. If somebody wants to correct me and, and send in, please do. But uh, You can send it in at gamedayiq at gmail.com. There you go. Um, June 14th, 1969, we haven't covered tennis yet. Steffi Graf, German tennis player. Did you know she was a winner of 22 single majors championships? I had no idea she won that many. But in, and in 1988, she won the Golden Slam of Tennis which consists of the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon, the U.S. Open, and an Olympic gold medal. She is one of only four people to do that. Can you, and the others are two men and one other woman. So two men, two women have won it so far. Steffi Graf has won it. Just a quick quiz, for, a pop quiz for Mr. Cook, who, uh, you know, we aren't, to be honest, we aren't huge tennis fans, but I bet, I bet you get at least one, if not two, of these three. Can you name two men and one woman? That won the uh, in tennis, yeah, won the Golden that Slam. Won all four majors the slam. plus all yeah, the all Grand four slam majors. Maybe. Nope, the Golden Slam. Oh. You weren't listening. See, folks, see what I contend with. He was the Golden Slam is is Martina the all four majors. Tolova, she won. No, Martina it's all four majors plus the Olympic gold medal in the same year. That's what oh. the Golden Slam. Yeah, um, but it's not Navratilova. Serena did. Yep, Serena did. Yeah. And so the other two are men, and that would be Andre Agassi. Jimmy Connors. And, nope, Rafael Nadal. Oh. See, that, that, the other thing, they, they, had to, they had to be, well, anytime you're going to win a Grand Slam, you got to get red hot in your sport that year and 
to win a Golden Slam, it has to be the year of the Olympics. So there's a lot of lot of stuff going on here. That's why only four people have ever done it. Um, but now we come to the moment you've all been waiting for. Born June fifteenth, eighteen seventy eight, Margaret Abbott passed away in nineteen fifty five. She was the first American woman to win an Olympic event. She won the golf tournament in the 1900 Paris Olympics. So there's another one that goes in the category of those who came before, and uh, she's the she's the first woman American woman to win an Olympic event. So there you go. Um, also in golf, June the 16th, 1821, old Tom Morris passed away in 1908. We talked about young Tom Morris and the, the uh, contributions he has made to golf today. But uh, old Tom Morris, obviously his dad, he was a Scottish golfer. He won Open Championships in 1861, 62, 64, and 67. That's a, that's a pretty hot run there. Um, and I don't, uh, we haven't seen anything, any dominance like that. Uh, since that time, I think uh, young Tom also had a dominant stretch. But uh, even in the well, in this era now, there are just too many good ones, to, and it gets spread out. But uh, he shares a birthday with another golfer, 1970, Phil Mickelson, winner of five major golf championships, including three Masters victories in 2004, six, and ten. He's also a very good ambassador for the game. Phil Mickelson is. But um, here's, here's one that I know Chris will have a number of things to say about. Born, that's my air quotes for those of you who are watching closely, June the 17th, 1915, Bossy Field, the third oldest professional yeah. baseball park in the country behind Fenway Park, 1912, and Wrigley Field, 1914. Only time I ever played a game in there, Alan, was a charity softball game before a local minor league team where I dressed as Elvis Presley. Holy cow. There is a visual. Uh, uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I was uh, big king. You know, I was like the big Elvis Presley. Yeah, you yeah, you weren't the big. young the young years. You were the, the later no. years. But uh, I bet you I could pull off the uh, hair. The later you, years. Yeah, you could pull off the pompadour. Uh, you'd have yeah. to you'd have to put shoe black in it and, and grease it up real good. But uh, yeah, I could I could pull it off. But uh, no, I forget but, yeah. what charity we were raising money for. But to to play in that field, you know, because they long since quit using it for football. By the time I played, uh, right. they used to play football games in there for the high school teams, and uh, yeah, I never got to partake in that. But I think that would have been cool to play a football game in there. Yeah, it, it it was. It was. You really had to. You know how when you're looking at something that ha, uh, that like a picture that has something superimposed in it, and one minute you can see one picture and the next minute you see the other picture. It was kind of like that when you're because you're watching a football game, but you can clearly see the infield and the you know and, and everything, and so you'd have to stay focused on football. Where are the yard markers? You know, this is football. But but it was a lot of fun. But um. Something else that happened on June 17th. This was in 1994, and then again, the younger younger generation isn't won't be aware of this, but it was the date of the O.J. Simpson slow speed chase in the Ford Bronco driven by Al Cowlings through L.A. freeways. 
just threw that in. But that made news this week because Ford Bronco, the Ford's getting ready to release, re-release the Bronco, and I believe they're going to do it on OJ's birthday. Oh, my God. You've got to be kidding me. No. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's. We can. Uh, we'll. We'll uh, finish this up. I've got one. Another one here that is almost unbelievable. That what what I'll describe here in a moment. Born June eighteenth, nineteen twenty four. George Mikan passed away in two thousand five. He was the first true big man, and that's in air quotes once again. The first true big man of basketball. Born in 1924, so he goes, you know, he goes into the big, into major league, excuse me, major league, into the NBA in the mid 40s. He was six foot ten, 245 pounds. In 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 the mid 1940s, can you imagine playing some against somebody that size at that time? No. Well, he was he was adept with his hook shot with either hand, which has given us the Mike and drill. For those of you who are not basketball coaches, um, the Mike and drill, picture yourself, you're standing to the right side of the basket, basically inside of the free throw lane, and you, you, stand, you jump on your left foot, you push your, pull your right knee up and shoot with your right hand. As the ball is going off the backboard into the net, you move to your side, you catch the ball, now you're over to the other side of the basket. You jump off of your right foot, raising your left knee, and you shoot with your left hand. And you catch it, and you move over, and you go back and forth. And the mic and drill is something every basketball coach I've ever been around, and that's uh, 50 years, uses it uh, in some way, shape, or form. It's a great, terrific drill for young players who young players don't have the good coordination in their offhand. And actually, it's good for players of any age to get them to be proficient at shooting quickly with either hand. It also helps with your footwork as you drive because you you develop a rhythm going back and forth. And and most coaches will you know they'll kind of just for fun they'll they'll have a contest you know do it for a minute. And as easy as it sounds, you try doing it for a minute, you will be out of gas and and you know your arms will feel like lead and you're trying to shoot the ball and it, it, it's a great drill and that's from George Mikan 6 foot 10 245 I, that's a, that would be a, up, a fine fine big man now yeah and that's to back up I a can, story the global yeah. debut of the new Ford Bronco which is one of uh-huh. the most highly anticipated products from the automaker in years will occur on July 9th um but it also coincides with the uh, 73rd birthday of O.J. Simpson, the uh, famous wow. football star who was infamously involved in a nationally televised slow-speed police chase with a 1993 white Ford Bronco. Right. Following the, his alleged Back in 1994. Of, uh, yeah. Of, of uh, uh, his wife, Nicole Brown Simpson, Nicole and Brown her Simpson. friend, Ronald Goldman. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, anyway, hey, I remember in my paternity days when we would watch the OJ trial. Um, oh yeah, after class. Yeah, yeah. We were. Like, I was at Sports. We put court TV we on the map. Then. Yep. Uh, um, let's. Uh, the we, the last birthday from June eighteenth. This is in nineteen forty two. Sir Paul McCartney. 
I just threw him in. You know, a guy of his stature, hey, let's go ahead and do and Might and as well. Um, yeah, let's uh, I've got a got a real fine quote here though to um to use um this is a this is a good this is a good quote anytime. No matter what you're doing. I try to do the right thing at the right time. They may just be little things, but usually they make the difference between winning and losing. That's from Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And oh. that's, that's pretty good advice, whether you're on your job or going to class or participating in a sport. So there you go. <clears throat> a couple of pretty good quotes to start and end the show. How do you, what do you think about that? I, it's, it's nice bookends, you know, <laughs> nice bookends yeah. on it. Yeah, one one from one of the you. greatest basketball players ever, and the other from a high school football coach. But uh, I know, I just had to, had to put them in there, and I think they're both very poignant. I still like McClatchy. Don't get beat before the snap of the ball. You know, you you almost go, well, duh. Except that, how many coaches overlook that? You know. So anyway. Hey, uh, I just think, you know, it's always fun. I, I like going down memory lane and, and looking at seeing where, how we got to where we, where we are from where we came from. You know, I grew up watching Dan Fouts, but I didn't have any idea just how phenomenal his numbers were that he put up during his time. And, you know, reading about the progression of the Air Coriel through the, to its evolution into the West Coast offense, and that's what, you know, basically what we have today. Um, just fascinating stuff. For, so anyway, uh, I want to. I will just turn it back over to you, Mr. Cook, and uh, I'll just say a good night to all good sports. And for Alan Buck, I'm Chris Cook. Thanking you for listening to this week's edition of Game Day IQ at thegrillingtruth.com. control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed. You can't control what's outside your home, but you can control what comes in. Because Clorox disinfecting wipes kill 99.9% .9 of viruses and bacteria, including COVID-19 virus, when used as directed on hard, non-porous surfaces. So whether it's from dirty doorknobs, dirty shoes, or something else, outside germs won't stand a chance. When it counts, trust Clorox. Kill Pseudomonas, Salmonella, and Influenza virus type A2. Kill SARS-CoV-2 on hard, non-porous surfaces. Use as directed.